Welcome to the Adoption Connection Podcast, where we share resources by and for adoptive and foster moms. I'm Lisa Qualls. And this is Melissa Corkum. Don't worry, we get it and we're here for you. Good morning, Lisa, and happy Tuesday. Good morning, Melissa. You know, you and I get a lot of questions about screen time and kids, and I'm curious how you handle screen time in your family. Hmm. Well, currently we have a couple kids who have no limitations really on their screen time as long as they're doing what they need to get done and one who really doesn't get screen time at all. So, you know, we talk a lot here at the Adoption Connection about the idea of just being mindful, paying attention to our kids and what they need. So I don't think that there's a one-size-fits-all situation. In the past, though, probably the most successful situation where Patrick and I were both on the same page and we had all the kids at home and we had to be a little bit more uniform for how we were handling this and have a little bit more structure is we used to trade screen time or trade exercise time for screen time. So the kids could earn as much screen time as they wanted through exercise. And I think we did like a two to one ratio or one to two ratio. So for every half hour of exercise they did, they got an hour of screen time. And I think if I had to do it again, I would make it one to one. That's pretty clever. That's good. Well, we, you know, being the older, um, more mature parents, we weren't as captivated, I think, by the video games and things. And we held out for a long time. And then we finally got a Wii because we knew that it was more physically active. Um, Of course, our kids pretty quickly figured out how to do it in ways that weren't so physically active. But the Wii was our only thing for a long time. And then just this last fall, I think, or end of the summer, my boys were given an Xbox as a gift. And, you know, one of their siblings is in the gaming industry. So it's been really interesting, um, this transition into the world of Xbox and figuring out how to navigate that. But pretty much the way we monitor it is they can only use the Xbox on weekends when it's not a school night. So they can have it from Friday night till Sometimes they get to play on Sunday afternoon, and that's about it. So we're, we're probably a little stricter about it, but I find that, especially with one of my kids, the transition off of the video game is so painful and so difficult that I just am not up for doing it much more than that. So anyhow, the thing we're exploring now is at Christmas time, one of our adult kids gave the family a gift of a team game called Overcooked. And that was the first time our adult kids had played with the Xbox here at our house. And that's been kind of fun. It's where the whole team is working together toward a common goal. So we're, we're still figuring it all out in terms of actual gaming. I think we have Overcooked. I've seen, I'm not really a gamer, but I've seen people play it and it does look super fun. <laughs> yeah, I haven't played it either, but on uh, over the Christmas holidays, the, everybody was playing it and having fun. And I, I should probably try it because that'd be a fun thing to do with them. Yeah. So this week, we're actually doing a whole episode on this idea of video gaming. I know it's a hot topic. I know a lot of our kids are super into gaming. And so we tapped our resident video game expert, who was actually my husband, Patrick, to sit down with me and give his take on video gaming, because he actually is one of the gamers in our family. And our video game systems 
the ones that we own, well, I guess there's only one now, but we have owned multiple at one time are at the impetus of him. He wants them. They've all been his gifts. And of course the kids get to play, but you know, it wasn't our kids begging us to have gaming systems. He is always out buying the most cool, up-to-date, whatever, video game and game and games. And, you know, obviously the kids love that, but he is the gamer. He's been a gamer since I met him through college, I'm sure, well before that. So, you know, we live in Maryland. We have six kids, for those of you who are new to the podcast. Uh, Four of them came to us through adoption. Patrick has a bachelor's in computer science. So he has always loved technology, but then he also has a master's in theology, which is something kind of a little different. We don't know a ton of people who have, you know, split their interests that way, but it gives him a unique perspective on parenting and his philosophy on a lot of things, including how he handles video games. And we are both trainers with Empowered to Connect. So he is fully on board with you know, using trust-based parenting with our kids. And so he brings all of that to the table when we sat down to talk about video gaming. Well, Patrick, welcome to the Adoption Connection podcast. Thanks for having me. We are bringing you here because we want to talk about video games, gaming in general, but video games seem to be a really hot topic. They are a topic of contention for a lot of families, and you have a little bit of expertise in this area. My first question for you is, why do people even love video games so much? Because I don't get it. Yeah, I know you don't get it. And that uh, point of contention for families is also a point of contention for us at times as well. Video games. There are a lot of reasons why people like video games. And I'm going to talk a little bit uh, about some of the neuroscience behind it, some of the chemicals that get released during the process and whatnot. But if we think about generally speaking, and I'm going to be using a lot of information from a book called Reality is Broken by Jane McGonigal. I strongly recommend anybody who's listening, go read that book. It's a great book. And we'll put that link for that book in the show notes. So anyway, the the idea is that reality just doesn't do it for us anymore. Video games and games in general give us meaning and purpose that we aren't getting outside of video games. It's it's a reality that we desire and that we see because we want to have meaning, we want to have purpose, and we want to do something great. But this world that we live in that we call reality isn't providing that for us. So we escape to this video game world because we get to be knights, we get to be conquerors, heroes, all kinds of great things. And, you know, if you think about Super Mario Brothers, like one of the original great video games, you're this plumber guy who goes and collects coins and he's going to save this princess from this evil Bowser guy who's just a reptile of some sort that we don't know, but he's obviously very dangerous. And, you know, it's very important that we save the princess because what would happen if we turn the game off and the princess didn't get saved? Bowser would do something while the game was off, right? So we've got this idea that we can actually accomplish something and accomplish something meaningful, even if it's not really meaningful. We trick ourselves into believing it's meaningful. So this is what like drives us to play games is that there's this thing that we get to accomplish and that gives us meaning and allows us to do something great. 
So I'm guessing that there's a dopamine rush associated with video games, which we probably don't always think about. And a lot of our kids have been exposed to substances prenatally, which means their dopamine systems have been compromised and they've already experienced some of them huge amounts of dopamine from other substances. So they are constantly looking for a dopamine rush. And they have to find – they're craving it and their body is driving them to find it from somewhere. Right. So if we talk about uh, how video games are addictive and frankly they, they are addictive and they know how to make them addictive. I went to a game developers conference back in 2003 and I was fascinated by this speaker who was not – had nothing to do with video games. She was a dolphin trainer. And she explained video games in terms of how we train animals. And if you take any game out there, you know, the new ones that people play on their phones, cl phones, Clash Royale, Clash of Clans, you take the old games like Super Mario Brothers, any, any, any game that you can really think of. And you go in and you start the game and they get you addicted right away because Take Super Mario Brothers. You go and you start collecting coins and you hear the bling, 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 right? And every time you get that bling, it's a reward. We recognize it as a reward, which gives us a dopamine hit. And we're getting lots and lots of dopamine hits over and over and over at the beginning of the game. And we start doing things like leveling up. And it's really easy to level up early in a game. And it gets a little bit harder and harder and harder. And it's longer time between that we need those dopamine hits. But we play seeking those dopamine hits because we know it's going to come at some point in time. And that's how animals are trained as well. They Dolphins, they don't need fish every time they do a trick, but they need to know that at some point in time they're going to get they're going to get some fish. So that dopamine hit that we get when we get those rewards keeps us addicted to video games. So there is some danger in that that we get addicted to these things because of that uh, uh those that craving for dopamine. Well, and you talked about our current reality not giving us the hit of dopamine because we need dopamine even if we, you know, haven't been prenatally exposed to other substances. Our body still wants to feel satisfaction, wants to feel happy, wants to feel connected. And if you think about culturally, a thousand years ago, there were more activities that brought dopamine, right? We hunted for food. So like there was a huge dopamine rush if you got a kill, if you were going out with the purpose of feeding your family and picking berries, like you were gaining successes. People had a purpose and having a purpose and winning those things provides a dopamine rush. But if you think about today, you know, we do a lot of things like drudgery, you know, kids are in school, not having fun, we're at work, not enjoying our jobs. So we're not naturally getting dopamine dopamine releases like we would if we lived in a different time and culture. Right. And so, I mean, that's one side of it is that that dopamine hit that we're just not getting anymore, which uh, we were built to crave and built for that kind of stuff, which has totally been stripped from, from us. Uh, it's a really sad thing that that's our reality nowadays. And some great ways to get around that is to like – gamify our lives. Uh, there are lots of ideas you can do to gamify. Uh, Jane McConaughey, in, in her book, she talks about how she gamified chores. She created a game called Chore Wars, right? She gamified um, the idea of getting better over time. She created a game called Super Better. It's on both of our phones. Um, and it uses that bling, that like sound. And I know it sounds 
stupid that a sound can you give you a dopamine rush, but I dare any of you to download the Super Better app. I'll also put that in the show notes and put a goal in there like um, like drinking water. And so every time you take a sip of water, you can register it in your Super Better app and it makes this addictive sound and it makes you know whatever goal you're working towards super fun. Yeah. And some of her points with that kind of thing is, one, you have to pick a name. You have to pick a character name. Like she started off with Jane the Dragon Slayer, but came out with like Jane the Concussion Slayer because she built this after she had a concussion with the hopes of getting better from her concussion out of her depression. And it actually worked. Yeah. So identity is a really huge part of gaming, which is interesting, right? Because a lot of our kids, because they've lived in different homes, had different caregivers, we would recognize that a lot of them struggle with identity and self-confidence. And so gaming gives them a solid identity that sometimes we're having trouble, you know, nailing down in reality. When it comes to like the neurochemistry stuff, just to go back to that for a minute, is oxytocin. That's another one that we get released when we play a lot of video games, which if you notice, a lot of video games nowadays are... Uh, games you play with your friends. You know, there's this community aspect to it. What's interesting is when Jane wrote this book, which was, it's been a while now, it's probably been eight, nine years. Uh, Halo is big, uh, which is an Xbox game. And there was this big competition to log something like a billion hours or a billion kills. That's what it was in the game. And people from all over the world got together to accomplish this huge goal of killing a billion pretend bites on a, <laughs> on a video game. I mean, really, it's kind of silly when you think about it, but there is this community aspect to it where people are getting together and doing something as a group, as a community, and it actually gives you that oxytocin hit. Yeah, and so oxytocin is, of course, like the bonding hormone. It's what allows us to create deeper and more intimate relationships with people. A lot of our kids struggle with this. A lot of our kids with attachment disorders, you know, when you break that down into a neurochemical thing, it has to do with oxytocin. And so we were built to be in relationship with people. We talk a lot about that here at the Adoption Connection, but some of our kids really struggle to do that with other human beings because other human beings have let them down. And so gaming gives them an opportunity to create relationship uh, in this environment. And again, it goes back to purpose and this drive to do something, to be able to feel successful. So I also think it's really interesting to think about our kids who struggle in social circumstances, which I think is a lot of our kids. And for whatever reason, maybe because the rules are clear, you know, it's something that they can grasp because it's not as like actually intimate as sitting next to a human being and giving eye contact, they can do relationship better in a video game environment. Yes. And if you want to think about like connection to your child, right? Uh, PJ and I, PJ's our middle son. Yeah. And when he was younger, he and I played a lot of video games together. And favorite games were games where we got to do stuff together. And I know, Melissa, you would like, think it would absolutely crazy because we'd be like yelling at each other, go over here, no, over there, over here, over there. It doesn't sound like you're enjoying each other's company. It sounds like you're yelling at each other a lot. (laughs) I, I get that. But really, I mean, what a great bonding experience it was. And like, we kept going back for more and more of it together. We'd always like 
be looking for more time to play the games and beat the game together and beat the bad guys together. And what a great way to get on your kid's side is to conquer something together. Yeah. And so this is an interesting concept that we've kind of held this tension in our family because screen time makes me twitchy. Thinking about the amount of hours that some of my people play video games makes me twitchy, and I'm sure a lot of you can relate. But Patrick's constantly kind of pushing back against some of the things that I think are driving me crazy and pointing out some of the benefits of what's going on. So, of course, there can be some dangers. There's can be too much You know, it's interesting to think about all of the things and the reasons why our kids are playing these games and think about some of the benefits because video games are providing for our kids some of the things that we actually want for them. So we can think about some of the benefits of games and video games and not just see all the negative because I think the media has portrayed that, you know, our kids should only play X number of hours of games or they should only play games from a certain age on. And there's a lot of things to be said for all of that. But I think we also haven't had a balanced conversation about this necessarily. Right. And, you know, the amount of time that they spend on video games, that's always a great question because we think, oh, they're playing video games. They're so lazy. But I'm going to challenge that concept that kids who play lots of video games are lazy because it's simply not true. If you think about games that they're playing, Take Minecraft, for instance, or some other game where they have to just do boring tasks over and over again, right? Some of you probably remember Farmville back, I don't know, that was probably 10 years ago now. It was a huge game. It really was nothing of a game. You would just randomly click on squares like to plant stuff more and more and more, just mindless activity. But people did it over and over and over again. Because there's this idea of um, flow, and flow comes from some guy named Csikszentmihalyi back in the 1970s. And he came out with this idea that we get into a groove or in the zone, and we really enjoy good, hard work. Like, that is something we enjoy. We seek it out. Good, hard work. That's meaningful. And so... We get into games like World of Warcraft and we have a quest and it's go over here. You walk over there. It takes you 10 minutes to walk over there, but you get over there. And then the person says, well, now you need to go talk to so-and-so. And that's another five minutes over to somewhere else. And you walk five minutes over to somewhere else. And then they're like, go kill me three animals. And you go and you kill three animals. And that takes you a half an hour. And you're fine with all this stuff. And you do all this stuff. You're not lazy. You're just looking for good hard work that is meaningful to you. And so our kids aren't lazy because they're doing these things. We're just not giving that to them in reality. And if we were to give them that kind of work, guarantee you, reconsider the idea that they were lazy. Well, I think about, you know, you've been kind of the new principal of the Corkum Homeschool this year. (laughs) And so you have been the primary education deliverer for our youngest son and tell them what you've been doing a lot with him. <laughs> okay. So our youngest son really struggles with the idea of problem solving. It is something that is a struggle for him. I'm just, I'll just leave it at that. One of the things I did with him was 
Ken, I'm going on video games. Which I was super excited about, let me tell you. Yeah, I know. However, it wasn't just any video games, right? I, I wasn't looking for the shoot 'em up, the gory stuff, or anything like that. This was specific towards educational purposes. I'm a lover of uh, puzzle games. I love puzzle games. And they really put your mind to work. And there's there are a lot of benefits to puzzle games. Let your kids play as many puzzle games for as long as they want. Because the number one skill in that people need in the job world and job market and entrepreneurship is problem solving. The idea of puzzle games teaches you problem solving because you have to be creative. You have to learn outside of the box thinking to be able to beat these puzzle games. And really, I put our youngest son on these puzzle games. And I started out with one. There are some really hard puzzles in it. He went off and he really struggled to start. I mean, he really struggled to start. And I knew he would. And you'd watch him and you would just like drive you insane, like trying to get him to do the right thing. And you're like, just move it right one square, just right one square. Why do you not put it there? And he just wouldn't do it. He would just like move it the same direction every single time and die every single time, like 87 times in a row. He, He did one level. He died over a thousand times. Actually, literally died over a thousand times before he solved the puzzle, which is perseverance. Oh my goodness. Like for a kid to have that kind of perseverance in a game like that, that is a great quality for a kid. And he didn't even really get that upset about it because he was playing video games. Right. Perseverance came out of this. And after playing for several days, he got through the entirety of the game with levels that were really hard. I mean... They were hard for me, and I'm a problem solver. I'm a puzzle guy. It took him a lot longer than it took me, but somehow he got through it. His brain is elastic, and it's able to go further than we, than I thought it was going to be able to go. And so he kept playing games and games and games, more games, and just started picking up these games, and he got better and better at all the different games and the problem solving. Which is huge for executive functioning, too, which is something a lot of our kids struggle with, executive functioning being the part that helps our emotions regulate, but then also how we plan, how much, where we are in space, how much time something's going to take to do, taking a bigger task, breaking it down into a smaller task. All of those things are in the executive functioning domain. Right. And yeah, I recommend to anybody, if you don't want your kids playing lots of the shoot 'em up stuff or whatever... Puzzle games are the way to go because they are so educational. Even if it's not like what you would consider like book knowledge kind of stuff, this is the kind of skill that people really need uh, in life. Yeah. So talk a little bit more about those first person shooting games. And are there some that are like, quote unquote, better than others? What are the benefits? We talked a little bit about this, but specifically, I know PJ was playing a game years ago that kind of made me shudder because there were a lot of guns involved. But you pointed out that they were actually shooting aliens, so they weren't shooting other people. But there, again, was this team mentality, this purpose, and he was working collaboratively together with other people. And so, again, you were trying to convince me that it was more beneficial than I was believing it was. Right. There's a lot of that collaboration side of thing that comes into play. And there's also, when you play against people, there's some of that competitive nature. And you know, games that are where you're shooting aliens and other things like that are clearly bad, that it's not as bad as like shooting people. I'm one who believes that we can separate reality and 
video games or those imaginary worlds that we make up in our in our heads. And people do it all the time. I do it all the time. Uh, my son does it all the time. Most people do that all the time. Some people have a hard time with that. And those games really are not the best for them. Like one of our daughters who really could not separate the idea of like, say, a movie that was happening, that it was actually pretend, right? And people who struggle with those kinds of things, shooting games are probably not the best kind of game for them. That being said, there are some games I would stay away from. For instance, uh, Gran Turismo uh, Auto. GTA? Grand Theft Grand Auto. Theft Auto. Why am I saying Turismo? Grand Theft Auto. I am not a fan of that game or other games that specifically demean people or demean women particularly. And GTA is horrible at uh, demeaning women and objectifying women. And it really goes against the idea of building relationship or respecting people because there are some things that you have to do or you can do in that that are just abhorrent. The idea of even doing that in imaginary world is really not something that I would consider acceptable. I, it, it's really sad that those games do that. So there are definitely games that are better than others. You're going to give me some names of some puzzle games we can put in the show notes, right? Yep. What would you say to parents who think they have a child who's addicted to video games? How do you kind of maybe figure out what kind of I mean, we should probably know what kind of games they're playing already, but how do you bridge this gap between a kid who never wants to leave his computer or a gaming console? What are things that we can do in real life that help with that like dopamine, oxytocin type thing? And or how are the ways that we can bridge our kids maybe from where they are and being kind of fighting against them on this whole video game situation to more on their side? So one thing to start, start being a gamer. <laughs> so... That's one thing, seriously, that you could do is start being a gamer and join in with them on it. Find out what's really going on. Play with them. Play against them. And just engage you with them. I, I bet you it would totally blow their mind and shock them if you did that. Other things you could do is give them other opportunities. Play board games as a family. Uh, sometimes that can be a little contentious um, for depending on the child, like if you're playing against each other, but there are also games where you can play with each other. We could do say charades or something like that, but it's not a competition. It's just everybody getting up to answer or to solve one person's riddle and nobody's like getting points or anything. One of the games we like to play as a family is heads up. It's a game where somebody goes up and Everybody else does charades and or something or gives them clues. It differs to give them points. And, you know, they everybody has fun doing it, but there's no competition, so to speak, in it. We don't you could say, oh, so and so got seven right. So and so got six right. But we don't even bother doing that. It's just fun to do that as a as a group. So there are games like that that you can do that can pull them away from the screen. And you can also gamify like I had said earlier gamify chores, gamify their day, help them be the person who's going to, you know, conquer the school day with A's, you know, if they get in every A they get, they get one step closer to saving the princess. I don't know. I'm, it, it, you, need, you need to know your kid and the kind of games they like to play, but there are ways of coming up with gamifying, uh, gamifying the world for kids. Yeah. And a lot of that 
comes from, you know, being mindful, understanding your child, understanding which games will go well, maybe having to test out a couple things. I'll also put a link to the show notes. We have a blog post on the adoptionconnection.com of a list of games that other adoptive and foster families are using in their homes that are working for them a lot that are collaborative. There are, you know, sometimes we have kind of diminished our kids' role in what they can do in the name of providing structure. And our kids do need structure, but sometimes we're so exhausted that we don't give them the opportunity to try something and fail. Um, and so we've kind of squashed some of that dopamine purpose-driven living. I know that I'm guilty of that. You know, one of our kids will want to like tinker with something or, or try something out. And all I see in my head is like mess or failure or, you know, something breaking or whatever. And I don't want to really deal with that. But, you know, we talked a little bit about this in the chores episode, which I'll also link to in the show notes. You know, sometimes the reason why our kids don't want to do chores for us anymore is because we give them these like seemingly rote kind of dumb <laughs> quote unquote, chores, where they're not, they don't really actually feel like they're contributing, um, because we kind of have dumbed down their task for them rather than letting them conquer something. Um, once upon a time, we had a system with our kids where we just made them responsible for a section of the house. Like someone was responsible for the kitchen. Someone was responsible for the living room. And by responsible, it just means meant that it had to get done and they could use their creativity to do it, including bribing, hiring a sibling or, you know, they could do it themselves. They could, you know, they could barter switch rooms with someone, uh, gave them a lot more autonomy about it. And it actually worked pretty well for a while um, rather than us dictating to them, you know, please go dust the TV center or whatever. You know, you talk about failure. That's something we have become horrible in this world with. We teach our kids that it's not okay to fail. Over and over and over again, we teach them that they're not allowed to fail anything. That is one thing that we could help with, is giving them the ability to fail and it being okay. And if you think about video games, this is what they're learning in video games. Another reason why people love video games so much, because they get to fail over and over and over again and over again. And every time they die, they get to come back to life. They get a new life again. And then they get to try to conquer the mean boss again. And they learn new ways and they adapt and they get better. And eventually, you defeat the boss. But they learn that in video games, that it's okay to fail. But in real life, we're constantly telling them that it's not okay to fail. And if we can give them the permission to fail and not lash out at them when they do, what a difference that could make in how they interact with us and interact with real life, IRL in yeah. real life. <laughs> um, I, this is kind of a silly example, but our youngest son empties the dishwasher a lot right now. And it's a little bit nerve wracking because he's not gentle with the dishes. Sometimes things go where they're not supposed to. Uh, and one of the things that I did just to set my own self up for success was get plates and cups and things that I wasn't emotionally attached to and that could easily be replaced. So for example, we live near an Ikea and we can get these like plain white Corel type bowls and plates for 99 cents a piece. And so that's what a lot of our dishes are now because I know that if he breaks something that I can handle that with 
less dysregulation on my part because I want him to learn how to empty the dishwasher and it's really helpful for the rest of us rather than me like having him break something once and mean like, oh, never mind, you can't do this. I'll just do it from now on. I can't deal with the stress of broken dishes. Um, so sometimes we're like shooting ourselves in the foot. I know you're looking at me like I'm just preaching to the choir. I should really, <laughs> I'm not really good at this, friends. Um, that's just one example where I did it right, but I do it wrong like pretty much every day. Um, do you have anything to say to people whose child is like legit addicted to video games? How do we like even start to address that? Yeah. So that's a hard one. And, you know, a lot of people are going to think that their kids are addicted to video games and they just need to like end video games, take it away from them. But that's not a great way to do it either. Some kids that we think are addicted to video games actually are uh, really badly in a bad way and some uh, probably less so. But we all think it's really bad when our kids are addicted to video games. There's There are a few different ways. One, uh, you could seek help. That's one thing from a therapist or something like that, that when it, when it becomes a real problem. The other option is to, like I said, start moving your real world towards games and limiting the amount of screen time or just taking it away. I mean, it's a horrible thing to do, but when it's a serious problem, like psychological problem in South Korea, there have been people who have died from video uh, game addiction because they forget to go pee or they stay up all night. People stay up for days upon ends. Uh, at days days upon days. Thank you. Without ever sleeping. And they just pass out and die. You can read about this kind of stuff. <laughs> See, and this is the reason why we don't want our kids playing video games. Right. That's true video game addiction. There's not much of that in the United States. Um, there, It's much more so in... Uh, Southeast Asia, East Asia. Some of this may be kind of just reconsidering what our definition of addicted is. So for like, for example, we have a 16 year old son. He was homeschooled up until a couple years ago. So he had like literally unlimited access to video games. Now he's in public school. So he has to at least get up, go to school. But when he comes home, he pretty much goes straight to his computer and plays video games. And sometimes we don't see him. I mean, he's a teenage boy, so he does like to eat. <laughs> so that happens sometimes. But he spends most of his free time, of which there's a lot, because we've chosen just not to police this area of his life, playing video games. I would say a lot of people might think that he's addicted. But then there's also these glimpses of because he has this freedom, he's also shown us that he can, while he loves to play a lot of video games, and this kid plays hours upon hours of video games every day. Uh, it's not affecting his grades. And by affecting grades, I mean, like, if you have a kid who's going to do D and C work anyway, whether they're playing video games or not, that doesn't count. And if someone really needs him, he'll be there. Like, he's the tech support for my parents who live with us. And we've been able to channel that love of video gaming and screen time into, you know, helping him, like when he was playing Minecraft years ago, helping him set up his own server. He's learned a lot through this. He's like, he's a video game nut, but now he's also a computer nut. So he knows a lot about computers and what kind of computer he even needs to game. So there's been a lot of educational pieces out of this. We invite him to be a part of family celebrations. 
And there are only like two things I've talked about this before on the podcast that I really feel strongly about in our family that he be at. And he knows that. But we do see him choosing to spend time with our family, not all the time, but we do see, you know, breaks in the video game playing for him to come out and engage. Right. And as he's getting older, giving him the independence to make those decisions is, I think, a positive thing because, you know, when he's going to be making those decisions on his own anyway, and as long as we kind of like put some boundaries on the road and like push him in the right direction, general right direction, and I I think that that's uh, a good thing. But there's also the side to what he does that you didn't mention, which is he's getting on to play with his friends. And his friends are all over the place. They're not just right in the backyard. When I was growing up, we had a bunch of friends in our neighborhood. We had a neighborhood of kids who played street hockey. And every day we'd go out and play street hockey. That was the thing. That was our friends. And we live in a more rural area now. And, you know, my son's friends don't live anywhere near us. And, I mean, the closest one is probably five miles away. And the other ones are just scattered around. But he gets the opportunity to hang out with his friends and build relationships, even though there's just a lot of talking and um, a lot of yelling, a a lot of yelling. There's a lot of yelling. I, I hear that going on. But, you know, that's part of like building relationships, too. And it's all in all in good fun. So I, I, I can't stress strongly enough that the relationship side is so important to this and it's different than what we're probably used to from when we grew up when we had to go outside and do it and you know the world is changing some the world is changing a lot this is a good way or a not bad way at least of building those relationships you know when i was doing it and playing video games when i was younger like we'd get around the tv screen our friends would come over and we'd grab controllers and do it and one of the other sides of this, which I didn't mention, I think everybody here can appreciate this as parents, is this idea of the fun and excitement in purpose and meaning that we get out of teaching others to play the game. Once we've mastered something, one of the great joys we get is when we get to share that with somebody else and teach them how to do it and then watch them have success. So one of the things our kids often do online or whatever with video games is they'll get really good at a game and then they'll get their friend involved and show them all the tips and tricks and the joy and the excitement they get out of seeing their friends even surpass them and and score or whatever really brings a sense of joy and pride and we all as parents can experience that when like we see our kids doing things that we've taught them to do and they excel at it and they do better than we could have ever done there's a sense of pride and joy that comes out of that. And that's something that I think is really a powerful thing when it comes to relationships, the joy and excitement and good side of video games. Yeah, I think the other thing to think about too is our kids could be doing worse things. So if they're under our roofs playing video games, we know exactly where they are. So we don't want this video game thing to necessarily be the reason why we have relationship problems with our kids, because I think sometimes we're making it out to be worse than it really is. Very true. We could use this as a tool and a way of connecting instead of constantly pushing back at it because we don't understand it, or maybe we just don't enjoy it or whatever. 
the reason is that we want to push back on it. We think that it's creating laziness or we think that it's driving them away from other things that they could be doing. But there's so much good to it. And if we see that side to it and maybe engage them in with it and interact with them with it, I, I think we'll see a lot of benefits that we wouldn't see if we didn't. And as opposed to creating the contention and the pull and the control battle and all that stuff about it, if we engage it, engage with them, they're going to respect us more. You're going to get on their side. They're going to be more likely to listen to you about other things as well. But if we are constantly struggling with them on this, that's not going to get us anywhere with our kids. And really that relationship side, not just when they're teenagers, but when they are no longer teenagers and they move out of the house or whatever. And we don't want them resenting us because if they fail, we want them to be able to have a fallback and come back. We want them to be able to still have a relationship and know who's on their side and who will always be on their side. Yeah. And I think the other thing, if we're open to this video game phenomenon, it opens the doors of communication. If our kids know that we hate video games, they're going to hide things from us. It closes the communication doors. And then I would also challenge you, you know, if we think that this is one of the worst things that our kids could be doing is to kind of walk through like, what is the worst that can happen? You know, we talked about people dying from not going to the bathroom. That's extreme, right? But kind of the more worst case scenarios, at least for our family, were things like, well, what if he never does his homework? What if he fails out of school? What if, what if, what if he never gets off my sofa and never gets a job? You know, but when we really walk through some of those things, one, even if our kids fail out of school, it's not the end of the world. I already walked through that worst case scenario in my head with one of my kids and decided that, you know, you can always decide you want your education and redeem it later in life. And we've talked about, you know, what if my child never gets off our sofa? Well, we've had young adults living on our sofa, um, not just our kids, but in other capacities. And it's also not the worst thing in the world. And I always say, you know, we think about can'ts, not won'ts. You know, if a child can't, quote unquote, launch successfully, there's a reason for that. And so, you know, it just goes into how do we love and what success looks like and how do we find define success if they weren't on your sofa playing video games and they don't have the skills to launch, they could be in much, much worse places. So sometimes it just helps to kind of bring it all into perspective. I'll also say this, if you're a parent of a child with special needs or who came to you through adoption or foster care, you know that the people that get you because of your circumstances are few and far between. Sometimes those people are not local to you. And we as parents have connected on Facebook groups and through podcasts with lots of other people who help us feel heard. We're using a virtual world to make relationships with other people. And that's basically what our kids are doing too. They're just using a different platform. Just remember, if your kid starts wearing diapers while they're playing video games, that's the time to seek professional help. Yeah. And I think we'll wrap it up with that. (laughs) It was a lot of fun for me to listen to you and Patrick talk together. What a fun thing to interview your husband. I'll have to do that with Russ sometime. I think the thing I found most encouraging in the interview was the fact that gaming actually, you know, our kids want to do it. It's a lot of fun for them, but it actually is an opportunity to connect with them, to be side by side in a form of play. You know, it's not like 
maybe throwing a ball around in the yard or things like that, but it is a form of play. And I loved when Patrick was talking about the problem solving aspect of like team play of strategies. It made me think that we could make use of our Xbox in a different way, not just as a, okay, you guys can go play for 30 minutes or 60 minutes or whatever it is, but okay, we're going to sit down together and we're going to play something specific together. You know, maybe we're always looking for ways to kind of woo our boys into things because they're in middle school and, you know, they're not always eager to do whatever it is that we're suggesting. So anyhow, it opened my eyes to some new ideas and I'm really looking forward to seeing Uh, what Patrick gives us in the show notes too, where he's going to give us some ideas of games he recommends and other resources. You and Russ could become such the cool house. You could be the house where kids come and the parents game too. (laughs) I think that would be quite a stretch, but they do have siblings. They have one sibling in particular who is a professional gamer kind of person. So I don't think that will be my next career. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so we will have all the things that we promised in the show notes, in the show notes, uh, including links to some game recommendations, things that are things like puzzle games. We will also link the Jane McGonigal book and her TED Talk in the show notes if you're interested in kind of seeing more of the brain science and the research behind all of those things. Also, if you want to connect with Patrick, he is a member of our private Facebook group at the Adoption Connection. So you can search for that group on Facebook. We would love to have you be part of that conversation. And then you can pester him with all the questions you have about your kids and video games. We'll have a link for that also in the show notes. The show notes can be found at theadoptionconnection.com slash 37. We've come to the part in the podcast that we call Mentor Moments when we answer a listener's question. Today's question is, how can I connect to the heart of my son who is still hyper-focused on his biological mom? She is his mom. I know this. I do not want to replace her. I'm just not sure how to reach him. So I think the biggest part of this is, I think we've been given this false sense of success that when we do a certain thing, something will happen. This like cause and effect. If we show our kids love and affection and we offer to connect with them, they'll connect back. And so sometimes I think we think if they're not ready to connect with us or they haven't connected with us yet, that that means we're doing something incorrectly. But I don't think that's the case. I think we're doing the correct things. It just takes time. Well, one thing that came to mind when I heard this, read this question was that um, the fact that she knows her son is hyper-focused on his first mom means he must be communicating that somehow. Maybe he's talking about her. Maybe he's asking about her. And I think that that's a very special thing and a good thing because a lot of children feel that this is the forbidden topic. They're not allowed to really talk about their first parents and their, you know, that it will hurt their mother's feelings or their father's feelings. And so the fact that he's talking, I think is really, really good. And so I would say you want to make that always an open door, always, even though maybe in your heart, you're thinking, but I'm the real mom, you know, like we have feelings, we have genuine feelings. But the truth is that 
the more open-hearted you can be and the freer he is to talk about his mom, the easier I believe it will be for him to be able to build, build deeper and deeper connection because you're providing him with safety. You're saying your feelings are not too big. You are safe. Your feelings are safe with me and I'm here for you. And little by little, you know, we just keep doing the things we know to do to build attachment and hope that in time that sweet mother child relationship will develop. But I actually think this mama must be doing a pretty good job, even if she's feeling like it's really hard. Yeah. And I think it's like you said, Lisa, we have genuine feelings. And so I think recognizing that this is a season and it might be a long season, but it will have an end. But in that time while you're in this tough season, to gather someone around you, whether it be a virtual friend or an in real life friend who you can process this with because it does hurt. It does. These things do not just roll off our backs. They take an emotional and mental toll on us. Um, It's hard on us if we're pouring out care and affection to what feels like a black hole and this little person who we're pouring into or a big person who we're pouring into is you know, redirecting all of that attention to someone else. So I think just also recognizing that you need to take care of yourself too, or else you'll find yourself in a really bad place after not too long. Yeah, I think so. And I, I think, Melissa, you gave a really interesting example of the, the power of just over and over and over doing the things we know to do to build attachment and connection. Do you want to share that? Yeah. So, you know, we've had the privilege of walking through this journey with my siblings and some of our older kids. And we've been in those seasons where it felt like nothing we were doing was working. But a couple of our kids have come to this realization and appreciation for some of those things. And I was telling Lisa, it was kind of like those buckets at the splash pad, you know, the ones that are way, way high up. And there's like this trickle of water going into them and you're almost not even paying attention to it. And then all of a sudden it hits the brim and it tips and someone gets really, really wet. Right. And I think for our kids, sometimes that trickle can take years and years and years and years because they have holes in the bottoms of their buckets. But when we keep pouring into them, there is a point when it tips and all of a sudden, you know, the realization and appreciation comes pouring out. But we'll never have that opportunity with our kids if we're not pouring into that bucket. That bucket definitely can't tip if we're not putting those positive interactions, those affections in. Um, But if we are doing that, then we have a chance that that bucket's going to tip over and they'll appreciate it. Not that we're doing it for that appreciation, but just, you know, do it in faithful obedience that there's a bigger purpose um, and that those things are not meant to necessarily be returned on right away. Yeah, I love that. It's a very beautiful image. So for this mama, I would say just keep doing what you're doing. Just keep Keep pouring into your little guy. Just make sure that you have people pouring into you to give you the capacity to do that. Absolutely. If you'd like to submit a question for a future episode, send an email to email at theadoptionconnection.com or you can leave a message on our 
phone line, which nobody answers, so you don't have to worry about that. It doesn't even ring into our homes. But you can leave a voice message at 208-741-3880. If you need more personalized help, we both offer private coaching. Yeah, and I'll also say here that someone emailed recently and said, I think I received an email at some point saying that that was an option. Is it still available? So the answer is yes, if at some point you received a personalized invitation to that and just haven't had a chance to take us up on it yet, it doesn't expire. So, you know, head to theadoptionconnection.com slash services and grab a time. For more info, head to theadoptionconnection.com slash services. Before you go, we'd love to connect with you on social media. You can find us on Facebook or Instagram as The Adoption Connection. Thanks so much for listening. We love having you. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a quick review over on iTunes. It will help us reach more moms who may be feeling alone. And remember, until next week, you're a good mom doing good work and we're here for you. The music for the podcast is called New Day and was created by Lee Rosevere.